climbing to the cockpit with pilot and Wing Square's Chief Legal Officer, Tim Perilla, as he invites legal leaders aboard to share advice that will help you navigate even the most turbulent times of in-house counsel work. We'll cover a range of topics from data privacy to legal team structure to public company transactions and beyond. You don't want to miss this series. Fasten your seatbelt and prepare for takeoff. You're listening to Cockpit Council. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Cockpit Council. My name's Tim. I'm the Chief Legal Officer at LinkSquares, and today we have Jake Tauscher from G2 Venture Partners. Jake, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm excited yeah. to be here. Well, it's great to have you. So uh, we start out every episode, same question. Uh, it is a pilot-themed podcast here. So uh, what is your pre-flight ritual? Like literally not it's, meant yeah. to be figured. No, yeah, right? this is this is appropriate because I'm going to leave for a flight in like an hour. Right. So <laughs> so first you, first you record a podcast. <laughs> yep, yep. And then I listen to the podcast on right. the plane, so I have entertainment. Um, no, I think my pre-flight ritual. So I typically will download stuff because I never trust plane Wi-Fi. Yep. And you never want to be stuck on a plane with nothing to do. Yeah. Um, so I'll download some work if I think I'm going to be productive or some shows or books if I think I'm not going to be productive. Yep. Um, and then I'll uh, I'll get sometimes a little bit excited about the food options on the plane. Okay. I uh, I enjoy airplane food. That's maybe a fun fact. All Not right. really the actually eating the airplane food, the but the, the hope, the excitement. Like it's such a novelty, <laughs> and I always believe that it's gonna deliver. Yeah. And it usually doesn't, but uh, I get excited <laughs> about it. So. That's my pre-flight ritual. So on an airline by airline basis, and we'll definitely consider it an, an endorsement or a knock sure. on the airline directly. Yeah. Um, who has the best airline food? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, in my opinion, and I don't fly them very often anymore because it was during my time in Boston, but JetBlue has the best. Jet, I love how they do the ice cream. They always have like a gelato yeah. or an ice cream at yeah. the end of JetBlue. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. Yeah. It, it's, it's not bad. It's not bad. Yeah. Um, I'll even buy the little snack boxes and stuff, though, when you're oh, yeah. on American or United and stuff. And, yeah. You know, it works. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so let's talk a little bit about your career path. How did, uh, how did you make it to G2? Uh, how did you make it into VC at all? I mm-hmm. uh, would love to hear some of the story. Sure. So... Um, I guess going back to the the start of my career, I I thought I was going to go into academia. That okay. was my original plan. So I, yeah. I was a math major. I thought I was just going to keep doing that until until they kicked me out. Sure. And then I got to my senior year and I kind of panicked a little bit because I realized I, I didn't want to kind of, uh, you know, sit in a room and, and think by myself uh, for sure. a lot of my career. <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to engage with others more and and uh, yeah, so I decided to pivot to business. I had a lot of friends going into consulting. Okay. So I, I joined that train. Yep. Um, so I started my career in consulting in Texas. Okay. Um, and in Texas, if you don't want to work in oil and gas, which I didn't, okay. um, I have always been, you know, a little bit sustainability minded and such, okay. um, you end up in industrials. And okay. so I ended up doing a lot of industrials work. So uh, chemicals and aerospace and uh, manufacturing, these sorts of things. Uh, really enjoyed it. And then, as a lot of consultants do, I, I kind of wanted to get more ownership of the recommendations and, and such I was making. So I jumped over to investing. I, I went to a, a large private equity company called Advent International okay. on the industrials team, investing in large industrial companies. Um, learned a lot, really uh, enjoyed the work, uh, 
but then went to business school with a goal of getting a little bit more towards like, okay, I've built my resume. Now, what do I really want to do the rest of my life? What do I want to spend time on? Um, And for me, when I was thinking about the things I care about a lot, it was uh, sustainability and space. Those are the two things I like. That's pretty Uh, cool. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So I was like, I'm going to go work at space. So I interned at a space startup. And what I realized is at that point in the industry, uh, at the state of de- development the industry was at, uh, there, if you weren't an engineer, you just really weren't affecting the outcome of, of okay. a company, right? They, like I was at a company where it was 30 engineers and, and me and an, another finance person. Yeah. And, and we were doing work, but we didn't feel like we really were, you know, the thing that was going to drive the company or one of the things. Right. Um, so really, really, I could talk about the space tech sector for a while. Yeah. I'm a big fan of a lot of stuff that's going on over there, but decided it wasn't for me. Right. So then I thought sustainability. Um, I thought I was going to go join a company. That was my plan. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in that process, I met the G2 team where I now okay. work. And and they kind of pitched me, come out here for the summer, uh, meet a ton of startups. You'll immerse yourself in the ecosystem. Yep. And then you can join a startup. Yeah. And so uh, that was four years ago and okay. I'm still here. Nice, nice. So, uh, so you were in private equity for a yep. period of time. Mm-hmm. Two years. So, that change from private equity to venture. How did you find that to be? Was that was the approach different to the analysis around companies, or like yeah. what what was you know? I think a lot of a lot of the people listening, and myself included, interested in hearing people's experience because, to a certain extent, I almost feel like it's like as different as being at a law firm versus being in house. Yeah, it, pr- it probably is. Um, yeah. It's the same general job, yeah. but but a lot of difference in how you execute it. So the way I sometimes describe it to folks is at in private equity, you spend 150% of your time on one thing. It's, yeah. it's kind of a game of focus. Uh, you're putting a lot of money to work in, in one deal. You're a majority owner of that deal. Um, and, and so you're spending, you get very, very deep on things. Venture, you spend 10% of your time on 12 things. Yeah. So it's it's a different type of busy and a different type of cadence, first and foremost, which I think okay. actually takes some time to uh, adjust to. The sure. first the first like six months in venture, I just felt like I was you know moving between things very, very quickly. Right. Um, the, the second main difference, I think, is the type of diligence we do, for lack of a better word, the type okay. of uh, research we do into companies. Um, and and it was more similar than maybe I thought going in. And, and I think a lot of people think outside in because some yeah. of the fundamental things around uh, efficiency metrics and these sorts of things, they work for any stage of company. Sure. I think the, the primary difference is um, how product and customer forward we are in in uh, venture because at an earlier stage when you have less of a track w- record, I find that you really have to understand the product and the customer value proposition yeah. at a deeper level to kind of replace those years of track record you have demonstrating that when you're looking at a company that's 30 years old versus four years old. So yep. there's there's a little bit of a difference in the sort of things you're emphasizing, but broadly the set of work is is similar. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So you found it to be a relatively easy transition or? Uh, you know, I think, I wouldn't say easy, <laughs> doable. I think there's a lot of, a lot of the same skills apply. So yeah. that was nice, especially at the growth stage where we invest kind of later sure. stage, series B, C, D. The mm-hmm. companies have 
metrics. They have P&Ls that you can learn something from, right, right. in a way that Seed maybe does not. Sure. Um, but there's certainly, uh, yeah, there's certainly a transition in in the sort of things you emphasize and then also the sort of things, the, the prioritization. Because I think um, in, in private equity, you have – you can generate a lot of value in, we talk about the 80-20 rule, right? Okay. Um, I think in private equity, I once had it described to me as like all the value is generated in that 20, right? Yeah. Like everyone does 80-20, you, you try and be efficient, but in private equity, really where you differentiate is finding an insight in that last 20, like okay. driving all the way to the answer because you're competing against a lot of other folks who are driving all the way to the answer. Right. And everyone has the same view of the company at the 80 level right? Um, because it's pretty straightforward, yeah. but it's kind of in that last 20. Um, venture is is not driving the full last 20, but picking out the five of that 20 that's important and driving there. Okay. So there's like a prioritization of I need to figure out where I'm going to spend my time because I don't have time to do the full 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I need to get the answer on on the thing that matters. That makes a ton of sense. Makes a ton of sense. So um, G2, obviously big on the ESG side. Can you talk a little bit about the firm and and a little bit about the investing philosophy there? Sure. So history of our firm, uh, G2, we, we spun out of Kleiner Perkins, which is a large okay. VC fund here. In, yep. uh, I usually say here in the Bay. I'm getting into my there. company spiel. Over there I'm in Boston. In the <laughs> there in the Bay. Um, and uh, where the team ran the Green Growth Fund for about okay. 10 years. So spun out, rebranded in 2017 to G2, um, but focus on the same thing that the team had done at Kleiner, which is we invest uh, in companies that are transforming industry in ways that make those industries more efficient, more effective, more sustainable. Right. Uh, so the easiest way to think about our mandate is we, we often show this chart in, in you know, fundraising and, and such where we show emissions versus GDP um, globally. And over the last 150 years, they've basically grown in concert, like an R squared of, you know, 0.99. Okay, wow. wow. I'm making up the R squared. I don't know it. But, like, if you look at the (laughs) graph, it's just two lines that are right on top of each other. Okay, Um, And and both going up and to the right. Yep. And so what we think of as our investing mandate is we invest in things that help us split that. Um, so continuing to do all the things that the, we need to do to drive the economy, to keep the lights on, to keep people fed, to keep work happening, um, but doing it in the most efficient way possible such that we can decouple from, from emissions. Um, so that's how we think about our mandate. Makes a lot of sense. And so maybe give us a couple, and obviously like you're an investor in Link Squares and of course we're the most innovative company you've ever seen. <laughs> but what are what are some other, and we can get into CLM and, and legal, you know, uh, legal tech software generally sure. in a minute, but would love to hear a little bit about some of the other, some of the other industries, uh, areas where you think uh, there are some pretty exciting things happening. Yeah, of course. So we we invest a, across a bunch of different industries, as you'd imagine, with that mandate. That, you know, every industry has emissions, and every industry can get more efficient. So, but I'd say our primary areas of focus: we invest a lot in energy, yeah. um, in production of energy, in distribution of energy, in uh, efficient use of energy. We invest in agriculture. Um, we invest in industrials and manufacturing. So being more efficient in the way we produce things and the way we uh, move things. We invest in transportation. And then we invest in, uh, and you know, 
link squares and CLM would be in this category, something you'd call like efficient digital work. Okay. Um, so we have some, uh, you know, uh, recruiting tech, people management tech in that area, legal tech, these sorts of things. So are you, are you looking across all these different industries or are you particularly focused in the sort of tech space? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, every firm thinks about this differently. Okay. We're, we're pretty generalists, so we don't No, have, I mean you personally. Yeah, like, yeah, Like I'm, you so, at, like, projects you're working on. Yes. Okay. So, like, at our firm, everyone's pretty much a generalist. Okay. So there are certainly areas of expertise and experience you fall into over time. Um, but you can also kind of proactively uh, push yourself into other areas with research and doing work. So there's no real – we don't really have – sectors or boundaries, but we do have areas of experience and expertise that you end up spending more time. That's awesome. So, uh, so your day is probably, uh, probably not very boring very often, I would <laughs> imagine, right? No, I'd say, uh, I, I, I think this is true of every venture investor. Your day is a, a constant, uh, tension between, uh, meetings and, and carving out time for thinking. Yeah, yeah. So like, it's always easy to fill up your day with meetings, uh, that's and right. and that's you know part of our job, and that's the exciting part of our job: meeting new companies, uh, talking with other investors, and such. But it's also important to carve out time to to really think, to either proactively uh, build your thesis on a on an area, or to think about a company you heard of and and what you know what your view of that is, or, or to help your portfolio or that sort of thing. So it's kind of uh, managing that tension. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. So, um, let's talk a little bit more about, uh, about the tech side of the business. What are some of the hallmarks of companies that like first pitch, maybe like, yeah. this is absolutely right in the strike zone for us versus, yeah, it's cool, but maybe not, maybe not where we are. Yep. Great question. So I think the um, the first thing is stage, right? We're a growth stage investor, sure. typically B to D. So you're looking for a, a level of maturity of the business that fits that stage. Yep. Um, besides that, what makes a, a pitch stand out? I think the first thing is a, a really clear articulation of the vision. Okay. And, and I kind of break this into two buckets. So the first bucket is why is this a problem? Right. right. Like, and, and that's the bucket that almost everyone can knock out of the park. Like sure. if, if they couldn't knock that out of the park, they haven't made it to our stage. Right. That this is a problem that should be fixed. The thing that's a little that you don't see every time, but I think is equally as important is like, why are we do we have the right approach to fix it? Because most of these ideas that we see or any sort of innovation in the world, it's not a new idea. Right. You're not the first person to ever think of this business idea. Right. There are other people who have tried it who have yep. been unsuccessful. Um, and so showing that you understand that and you have a different approach that takes into account that, takes into account challenges others have faced and, and is gonna deliver, I think is um, what really stands out as like a clear vision. Yeah. The second thing is just metrics, right? right. Uh, the best way to show that a product is, is awesome is that uh, you're able to sell it efficiently, customers love it, and, and they wanna buy more of it. Yeah. Um, and so we, we rely heavily on both metrics as well as customer feedback. What are customers telling us about this product? Why it's, why it's the winner in their space? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so thinking a little bit and maybe getting a little tactical as far as, um, as far as advice to, to GCs, um, from, from the ESG side, what 
sorts of things should GCs be thinking about, legal leadership be thinking about, how can the legal function of a company help contribute to the ESG goals of the overall organization? Yeah, great question. So yeah, we uh, when we think about ESG, first, like, what is ESG, right? Um, the way I think about it is, is uh, you know, the financials are measuring what you're doing in the business, how much money you're making. Yeah. ESG is really a push just to measure how you do business and okay. and the impact you're having on society outside of the the money you are generating. Right. Um, and that goes across environmental, social, governance, obviously, sure. ESG. Um, and, and there's some controversy around ESG. It's been politicized to sure. a point, but uh, I really just think of it as as we need to measure how we do business. And to me, that's strategy and it's risk management. Yep. Um, and that's where it comes to legal. I think those are those are functions and concepts that legal can really own. And when you think about um, the different parts of ESG, first you start with governance. Mm -hmm. That's right down the middle of the legal function. Sure. Um, driving efficient governance, board structure, decision-making structure, all of that um, comes down often to the legal function. And, sure. uh, yeah, and the structure of the org. Then on the social side, I think this is where products like a CLM can really make a difference because uh, you find a lot of the social side is is embodied in contracts, okay. at least my view. Mm -hmm. um, when you think about what does the social side mean? It means how do we treat our employees? How are we compliant with regulations? Sure. Um, and when we talk to customers of CLM, they talk about how uh, contract management helps them drive compliance, helps sure. them update their contracts on a monthly basis so that, because regulators are always changing their rules, or, or helps them ensure that you know they're, they're best in class in terms of their the way they work with either internal or external compliance, like with regulators or just with our own goals. We want to be the best place to work. And for the, for us, that means all of our employees get X benefit or Y benefit. Like this is all embodied in contracts. Right. Um, and then on the environmental side, I think there's, there's actually a big push now to do work through contracts. So when you think about um, the, the emissions of an organization, a lot of it often is embodied in the supply chain, in what right. you're buying, not as much what you're doing. Uh, as much as 70 to 80 percent of your emissions are often in your supply chain, what they call That's scope three. Yeah. Um, and so there's a big push and there's articles being written about this, too. If you if you want to hit environmental goals, put it in contracts the same way you have SLAs with your suppliers. Right. You can have SLAs around. And, and this already happens with the social side. Right. No forced labor. These yep. sorts of things. You can do similar things on the environmental side. Yeah. Um, so I kind of view. Uh, the contract and, and more broadly legal documents are the they're the operating unit of ESG. They're the way you operationalize ESG. Yeah. And so I think uh, the legal function can really be a leader in, in ESG. It's interesting to when when you start thinking about it in terms of supply, because you, you look at a lot of different companies who have really turned sort of uh, the ESG position of the company into a competitive advantage, everything, you know, all of all of our products are sustainably sourced from sure. blah 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 blah, right? Yep. Litany of of different things that are operating principles for the business, and it makes perfect sense that if that's an operating principle for your business, that you're making sure that you don't get caught, uh, you know, tier one, tier two, tier three suppliers down the line doing things that are, you know, right. the opposite of what you're trying to do, right? Or, and that's, or otherwise contrary. That's why I think of it as strategy and risk management. Yeah, it's not. You know, 
or at least it should its its function should not only be hey look at us we're ESG it should be um, you know what's our strategy we want to have a really resilient supply chain we yeah. want to have be the best place to work uh, right. and and we're going to take care of our employees we're going to sustainably source because we think that those suppliers will will have more security of supply all these things are our strategy and, and managing risk yeah absolutely so um, maybe getting away from that a little bit want to talk to you about um, about as as an as an investor now you go through the due diligence process you go through a lot of pitches mm-hmm. all of this sort of stuff you you're even going I'm sure sitting down with your lawyers going through docs on you know terms of uh, share purchase agreements and things like that talk a little bit about some characteristics of attorneys that have impressed you through this process and other situations where maybe either the lack of an attorney on the other side was not helpful or uh, the attorney that was there was uh, less than helpful. I sure. Guess. Um, I guess the, the way I think about how attorneys can engage in the deal process, at least from my perspective, uh, you can kind of think of it as the diligence process and then the term sheet process. Sure. And so in the diligence process, I think many in-house counsels are, are very involved with setting up data rooms uh, presenting the data, because a lot of that data is contracts, again. Sure. Um, and a lot of those contracts are really material to the sort of evidence we're looking for when we're um, when we're deciding whether to invest in company. Yeah. So, for example, c- customer contracts, right? When we're deciding whether to invest in company, we're looking for customer conviction that this, this product is the answer. Right. Um, and we often invest in companies that uh, you know, the customer conviction has come, but the it's not yet obvious in the P&L, okay. right? It hasn't completely flowed through to, to really compelling revenue yet, but the customer conviction is there. Yep. Um, and you can see that sometimes in the contracts on the, on the range of LOI, like, hey, I'll buy a thousand of these, but it's completely non-binding right. to a take or pay contract being like the, the gold standard and, and right. everything in between. Um, those mean different things for how committed the customer is sure. to your product, your business. Um, and so a legal team that can really clearly articulate, here's our contracts and here's what they all mean. Like these are right. standard recurring revenue. These are, uh, you know, the customers doing a pilot and, and we convert that to this. These are LOIs, which typically comes before a pilot, but just laying that out in a way that's really easy to understand and understand what customers are committing to you. Yeah. Um, Another area is IP, right? Like sure. a, a really clear IP strategy. Here's IP. Here's what we consider trade secrets. It's all laid out. Very easy for us to understand. These are the sort of things that that we're trying to dig into, right? How defensible is the product? How much do the customers love this product? And I think a lot of that can be really well presented by by good legal teams in ways that really tell the story well um, and with yeah. evidence and data. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I've always that's always been impressed impressed upon me uh, from the leaders that I've had the opportunity to work with has been um, you know speed to responsiveness right sure yeah um, you know if you can get a data room spun up in two days uh, if you can get diligence requests back in you know in two business days three business days uh, it usually means good things for uh, good things for the deal but um, you know what are some things that you can think of that uh, for those potential portfolio companies that that you're talking with, what can what can GCs do to set the right tone for the diligence? Yeah, that's a. I think number one, 
coming to the table with a lot of that information already there, right? Yeah. Here, here it is. Uh, you know, we're not, you don't have to ask for it. We think about our business this way, just like you want to think about our business. Because really, when we're, when we're diligencing the business, we're diligencing the, the business, but we're diligencing the team as well. Sure. And I think to the point you're making about speed and res uh, responsiveness, like that is enabled by good internal operations, such yeah. that when someone asks a question, we don't have to go create this whole new thing we've never looked at and do all this analysis we've never even thought of. We yeah. do this. We think about the business this way and right. secure it is. And so I think setting the tone early with a well-populated data room that is well-structured doesn't have, that doesn't mean it has to be super, super extensive, right? right? I get a lot of data rooms where there's thousands of legal documents and like, yeah. I'm never going to read those completely right. transparent. You're not going to read every single customer <laughs> yeah. contract? <laughs> uh, but like I would read yeah. a summary of sure. those contracts for sure. I would yeah. read a summary of the IP uh, absolutely. And like we would eventually have lawyers read all those, but that comes way later, right? Sure. So like when you're thinking about the initial data room, I think just as important as being comprehensive and hey, here's here's the business is being uh, succinct and saying, yeah. here's the business, here's what matters. And, and people will poke around and ask additional questions, but it's not just a data dump. Here's every piece of data we've ever collected. Good luck. It's right. here's how you should think about this. Because the, the initial diligence process for a company is a really a chance for the management team to guide investors on how they should think about the business. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so maybe a, how damaging is it? Let's look at the flip side of that. How <laughs> damaging is it if you know you've got you get access to the data room mm -hmm. and you know you you start to go through it you send over a supplemental diligence request how damaging is it if you know timelines are drawn out and it's piecemeal and oh I, we didn't you know we just found this for example and through no fault of necessarily the the business i mean hopefully by series particularly series c or series d you've got your your so, house yeah. <laughs> in order a little bit but like especially some of the series b i have to imagine like no in-house attorney or the first in-house attorney and just like just like every other company that's out there there are contracts on laptops and there are yep. hr policies that uh we thought exist that don't exist yep <laughs> those yep. sorts of things um how how damaging is is that and what does that do to the what does that do to the way that you as a as a potential investor deal with the non-legal executives? Yeah. You know, I, I think it's it's one of a few data points. So it, it's not like it would completely kill things or sure. if it was done really well, it completely. It, right. It's, right. It's one of a few data points. But I think um, what it does what we often do discuss when we're making investment decisions is is just the operational cadence of the team. Like, yeah. is this team running a tight ship that is predictable and they know what to focus on and they have visibility and then they execute on that? And that is all evidenced in these sort of interactions. So I think um, when when a team is presenting their data, they should think about it. Number one, what does the data say? Yes, because that's important. Sure. But then number two you're also presenting it in a way that says, what does this say about how we operate as a team? Right. Um, and, and what do we focus on? How do we run our business? And showing that rigor really does set a tone that says, you know, we want to invest in teams that, that can operate with, with 
uh, efficacy and efficiency. And, and that's shown through that process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Alyssa, I know we've got a handful of questions. We'd love to see if you've got, got a couple queued up for us here. Definitely. All right. So the first one we ask everyone, so what is your hot take on working with legal as a VC? Uh, hot take is such a high bar. Um, <laughs> I, I guess maybe just like one hot take is I think, I think a lot of startups could consider in-house counsel earlier than they do. Um, for a few reasons. Number one, uh, we've talked about uh, the speed and, and how, how that shows that you're running an efficient business. Customers see that too. Yeah. And so when you're, when you're growing quickly and you're working with customers that, you know, they buy from startups, they buy from non-startups, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't want to be the one that's taking forever to get back to them on their NDA, taking forever to get back to them on their contract. You yep. want to be, uh, you know, punching at the equal weight of, of companies that have more resources and, and doing yeah. all the blocking and tackling so that your product is the thing that wins right. um, and you don't lose deals on blocking and tackling. I think uh, sometimes with external counsel, there is latency, right? Uh, yeah. And there is prioritization that you're not their only client. They don't know where in the hierarchy this particular customer falls. Maybe it's strate very strategic customer, maybe it's not. Um, so I think that uh, in-house counsel who understands the business can make some of those decisions that that maybe external legal can't. I also think on the risk side, you know, uh, in, in many ways, startups are like, uh, smart management of risk, right? You, sure. you take on more risk. Um, you do so to drive growth, to, to change an industry. Um, but having an in-house counsel that, that can look around the corner uh, and, and say, here's, here's the five risks that make sense. Here's the one that doesn't. Um, yeah. And here's why. And, and that gives us a lot of comfort as investors that someone in the, in the management team, in the room every day, has, has that view and, and can make those calls. Um, so... Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense, like particularly the and here's why. Yeah. And that's one thing that uh, that I talk a lot about with with guests here on the show is that, you know, it's not enough to just be a lawyer uh, when you're operating in house. Like, yeah, you should be able to understand those legal risks and you should be able to, you know, have some sort of measure around which risks are are or should be acceptable to the business and yep. maybe which ones are outside of the normal level of acceptability, but then you should be able to contextualize those risks in terms of likelihood of happening, yep. consequences, ability to remediate, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that with outside counsel, it's rare that outside counsel has such an intimate knowledge of the working of the business of the client right. um, that outside counsel would be able to really provide that level of well, and, that and level outside of acumen. Yeah, outside counsel responds to requests, right? And, right. and, and whereas in-house counsel also responds to requests, sure. as you know, uh, but also is sitting in, in meetings with management members and hearing about their strategy, hearing about new customers, hearing about new products. And they can take that view, not only which risks are you know, acceptable and which aren't, but what, how do we mitigate even the risks that we decide to take? Right. Um, and you know, it's always easier to mitigate a risk early than to deal with it later. Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, that is, that is something that bringing someone in early to, to ensure that rigor happens as you grow, yeah. uh, as opposed to kind of fixing it later, yeah. um, is a, is a strategy that I think people, more people could consider. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Um, 
All right. The next one is, what is your number one tip for legal leaders to advance ESG initiatives? Oh, good question. Um, I'd say uh, get started, honestly. It's, uh, there, and, and what does get started mean? It means, um, does your business have kind of an ESG uh, goal, if you will? Like, what does your business stand for? I've, I mentioned I've worked with a lot of industrial companies. Uh, if you've ever been in a presentation, like a board room or anything with an industrial company, the first slide of every single deck is always safety. Yeah. Um, and it's how many incidents did we have? What were those incidents? Where we have a goal of you know zero incidents. Uh, every company and and it's it's become a thing in the industrial sec- sectors, manufacturing, oil and gas, uh, because leaders emphasized it. And and it's not financial, but it's just this is kind of no compromises. We're going to get people home. Yeah. Um, and and I think similarly on ESG, just think about those things you want the business to stand for. What are what are your goals? Um, and then figure out a way to measure them. And, and that's really it. Once you, once you can set some goals, they don't have to be all encompassing or, you know, uh, just some goals and a way you're going to measure them and track them and report them in, in a way that is, you know, visible. And then you'll see how that goes and you can adjust and change and track and whatever. But just getting started like that, I think is, is, uh, the most important step. Nice. That's a great answer. Um, how about this one? What is the best lesson that you've learned from working with entrepreneurs? Oh gosh. Um, a lot. Entrepreneurs are very <laughs> impressive people. Uh, cause they're both the most, uh, irrational and rational people. Like the best entrepreneurs have to be both, yeah. which is <laughs> fundamentally contradictory. But I think, uh, the best entrepreneurs, what you see from them is, is they're really good learners. Um, because when you think about it, like the the skill set needed to go from zero people to twenty people, and then twenty people to a hundred people, and then a hundred people to five hundred, and five hundred to five thousand, those are you would hire five different executives to do that. Yeah. But founders often do all of that, and and the sort of uh, skill sets they have to build to do that, and the way they have to change their leadership style, change how they think about the business to go through that journey um, is really impressive. And I think it comes from from really active learning as well as uh, kind of regular uh, reflection. You know, like what what have I done over the last six months that worked? What have I not? How do I need to turn a little bit? And so I think entrepreneurs, they both, you know, they have great vision, but they're they're some of the best learners, the, the successful ones. All right, we'll do one more. Um, what time management tip do you have for a busy leader? I thought I think about this all the time. So I've tried basically everything. Um, I try like some of the stuff I've tried that's been unsuccessful, like the 25 minute meeting thing. I don't know if anyone here does that where you like schedule meetings for 25 minutes instead of 30 minutes because you try and get some like buffer there. It's yeah. just like no one believes that you actually have to leave at 1125. So I found that that's correct, particularly ineffective <laughs> um, and, and a bunch of other stuff. I'd, I'd say the, the thing I try to do, and I talked about this a little bit earlier with the balance between kind of uh, taking meetings versus giving yourself time to work and think, which I think probably in every role people struggle with when do you actually do your work versus when do you talk to people about your work and what's that balance. So I try and block my afternoons. That's my, that's okay. my current strategy. Yeah. So from like, two to five every day. I try to not take meetings. I break that rule all the time, but I try and make it the default. And then I only schedule over that for like portfolio stuff 
or maybe live deal stuff, but I'm not doing, you know, uh, new company meetings or uh, venture catch-ups or anything during that time. Um, yeah, that's a, that's that's one thing that I've done for the last several years now is uh, I, I have blocks of time mm -hmm. that I'll just throw on the calendar um, or else you, you just find yourself in a position where where you're set up for burnout. Yeah. Right. I mean, per, like lawyers are kind of, you know, not that dissimilar to, to VCs where you work as long as there's work. Yep. And you work until the work is done or until you're too exhausted to continue. And then you rest for a little while <laughs> and then you work until the work is done. Right. Yep. And that's how that's how associates build 2000. 2,500 hours a year. <laughs> hopefully is, not, yeah. too, not, hopefully not too many are doing 2,500 anymore, but, um, but having that time to be able to say like, all right, I have to do like pen on paper work or, yep. you know, what, whatever it may be versus like you said, going and talking about your work. Yeah. Uh, that's, I think that's a critical thing to, uh, to prevent burnout too. Yeah, we've all had those days where you you start work at 9 a.m., especially Zoom has been a blessing in a lot of ways, but it's made this 10 times worse. Yes. Because uh, the the bar for a meeting has just become incredibly low, which yeah. I think is a net positive, but it makes it hard to manage. Yeah. So you'll just be in meetings from 9 to 5, and you pull up at the at 5, and you're like, well, I have done zero work today. Like, now I need to actually do my job. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, finding that balance, I think, is critical to – uh, you can't do everything and, and to prevent burnout. Absolutely. Jake, thanks so much. It's been awesome. Yeah. Uh, awesome chatting with you. Thanks for joining us and uh, and safe travels back to San Francisco. <laughs> I appreciate it. It All was right. fun. Thanks. And uh, if you liked what you saw, just go ahead and give us a like, follow, uh, and we'll see you next time.